0: Today we're going to talk about World War II, uh, both on the battlefield and on the home front. Now, when I was in uh, graduate school, getting my Ph.D. in history so I could come out here and uh, teach at Lawrence, uh, I was required, like history graduate students uh, all over the country, to take a written and oral test on all the knowledge that I had supposedly uh, uh, accumulated over my years of studying history, which would ascertain whether I was in a position to proceed to the dissertation writing stage of my work. So here I had to take an exam. And I remember as I took the exam, which was extremely difficult and extremely unpleasant, saying to myself, this is the last fill-in-the-blank exam I'm ever going to take. From now on, I'm going to give them. Now, the style of these kinds of exams is to ask as broad a question as possible so that the graduate student can write voluminously and show everybody how much he knows. Well, the question that I got on this exam, on my exam, uh, will probably sound familiar to you. What event, I was asked, changed America more than any other during the 20th century. So now, you know where I get my ideas. I figure if I had to sweat over this kind of question, I'd have you do it as well. Well, for the record, my answer in graduate school to this question was World War II. Although, uh, since then, I've backed off that somewhat. uh, As I mentioned to you earlier, I'm starting to go more in the direction of uh, of World War I. Uh, But at that time, I said that World War II changed America both internationally and domestically more than any other single event of the 20th century. World War II, although I didn't use this example on my exam, although I wish I had, was like a giant mixing bowl, shifting and arranging its contents, meaning the American people, to create a new, different form. And in the case of the United States, a new society and a new relationship to the rest of the world. In many ways, World War II made a new world for the United States. After a number of fits and starts, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II finally and irrevocably established America as an international nation, an international leader, and the leader of the free world against communism in a Cold War that followed World War II and which itself was a major result of it. Unlike World War I, after World War II, there was no question about the United States joining an international organization like the United Nations. It led the United Nations. Domestically, World War II shifted the American population westward and southward as thousands of people drawn by the necessities of the war or by economic opportunity, moved to places like Texas and Arizona, and especially to California, which changed almost overnight from a pastoral state of orange groves and movie stars to an economic powerhouse, thanks to the defense industry, and became the center of what later observers would call and call today the Sun Belt. And World War II, by shifting populations around as it did, made possible another major theme of post-war American domestic life, suburbanization, when it created war production facilities on the edges of cities and built the roads running outside of the cities that were necessary to get to them. And after World War II, These roads would be carrying commuters, of course, to their new suburban homes. And finally, World War II linked the forces of big government, big business, and big labor during World War II into a production machine strong enough and powerful enough and efficient enough to make enough planes, enough ships enough tanks and enough guns to destroy Germany and Japan, two nations that had devoted almost all of their productive capacities towards military growth, but even so could not keep up with the United States. And after the war, this mobilization of American resources continued as government, business, labor, and another element which came of age during World War II, the research, technological, and scientific community, what we call research and development. And remember, we talked about the beginnings of research and development when we discussed American industrialization in the late part of the 19th and early part of the 20th centuries. All of these, big business, big government, big labor, research and development, uh, all continue to work in a partnership after the war, sometimes a loose partnership, Sometimes a contentious partnership, but a partnership, nonetheless, to continue to make the United States economy the most productive in the world. A centralized economy with large entities now making the kinds of decisions that smaller entities had made before the war. In this sense, World War II helped turn the United States into a true mass society, and I've used that term before. Not just socially, which is the way we usually think of this term and the way I did describe it to you earlier in the course, but economically a mass society as well. And, speaking of American society, by ending the Depression, which I talked about uh, last time, World War II began the process of smoothing over class differences in the United States, D- differences that, as we saw when we studied the Great Depression, threatened to destroy the American nation. Now, after World War II, there were, of course, still rich people and poor people in America, but there were also enough people earning middle-class incomes, many in, jobs in uh, with jobs in industries that took off financially because of World War II, to forestall the The possibility of a class war and a violent revolution, which had been a real possibility just a few years before. World War II did not create the modern American middle class to which so many Americans belong today all at once, and all by itself, of course, but it did create the conditions for this middle class in the years following the war to actually form. And specifically, Those conditions meant jobs. Thanks in large measure to World War II, over 80% of the American public, when polled today, say they are members of the middle class, which is very, very different than what you would have 100 years ago, where the vast majority would say they are members of the working class. This is a testament, I think, to the blurring of class barriers and the blunting of class rivalries that World War II set in motion. Once again, it doesn't mean that we have no class rivalries in this country anymore. It just means that, I think, World War II started a process of blurring them, at least, and, and mediating them. And, in addition to this, World War II, a war after all for human tolerance, for understanding of uh, ethnic and religious differences and for worldwide democracy and self-determination, created the atmosphere at home in America itself in which differences between ethnic and religious groups uh, 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 and also, at least to some extent, differences between racial groups were also tolerated. Again, not yet right away, as in the case of class differences, but Eventually, it was difficult, if not impossible, after World War II, to state openly, for example, that you didn't think Catholics or Jews were really American. Because as part of the war effort itself, as part of the effort to get Americans united enough to fight this world war, those who were non-Protestant, those who were non-Protestant and white at least, were absorbed into the American mainstream, essentially as they were. They were now allowed to be Americans, Italian Americans, Polish Americans, Jewish Americans, in a great wave of what came to be known as cultural pluralism, an impulse that would grow in the years following World War II into what we call diversity, or multiculturalism, today. That's where it started during World War II. World War II, then, allowed non-Protestant Americans to be considered Americans without having their identities obliterated in the great melting pot, which was supposed to make everyone the same kind of American. Thanks, in large part, to World War II, then, one can now be American today in a multitude of ways, and that's really what diversity is about. And finally even if it didn't break down all the barriers to acceptance and to full citizenship faced by African Americans, the armed forces, after all, were still segregated during World War II, World War II, nonetheless, by defining itself in terms of universal human tolerance and brotherhood, by trying Nazis after the war for crimes against humanity, World War II created the conditions for the growth of the Civil Rights Movement, in the years after 1945, because it was impossible for African Americans to be asked to fight for human freedom abroad without demanding it for themselves at home. Now, America's domestic human rights record was, of course, itself rather spotty during World War II, with the internment of Japanese Americans on the West Coast, as well as the persecution of Mexican-Americans and continuing prejudice against blacks uh, uh, inside and outside the armed forces. But the war at least began the changing attitude in the United States that eventually made the Brown decision of 1954, the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s, and even the Martin Luther King national holiday possible. World War II then did not eliminate racial prejudice but it began to change attitudes towards it by challenging white Americans in the years after the war to live up to its ideals. So, as you can see, and as I argued on my graduate school exam, I passed incidentally, which is why I'm standing here, World War II may have changed America, or at least created the conditions whereby the nation could change after 1945 more than any other event in the 20th century, although, as I said earlier, I'm starting to shift towards World War I if I was asked that question again today. Economic change, geographic change, structural change, cultural change, racial change, not to mention foreign policy change, profound change then. And so it's important to discuss how World War II and America's involvement in World War II uh, came about, as well as how America fought World War II. And to do this, we must first look at the nations that the United States would fight in World War II, Germany and Japan. Now, when we left Germany uh, after World War I, It had been the victim of a harsh peace uh, at the hands of Great Britain and France, a punitive peace, really, with demilitarization, uh, 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 lost territory, lost colonies, a forced admission of war guilt. The Germans were forced to say that the war was totally their fault. And perhaps, most damaging of all, a crushing set of monetary war reparations, which, even after they were substantially reduced Uh, through American intervention in the 1920s, were still far beyond Germany's ability to pay. And devastating to the German economy. Of course, we also saw how the reliance of German banks on American banks for capital during the early years of the Great Depression uh, served to transmit that depression, so to speak, across the Atlantic to Germany and the rest of Europe in the early 1930s. And the reaction to the Great Depression in Germany, unlike the reaction in the United States, and I contrasted those uh, uh, in my last lecture, was a revolution from the far right in Germany, the ultranationalistic, anti-Semitic right, in the person of a half-mad Austrian, of course, named Adolf Hitler, who only a few years before 1933 and his ascension to power uh, had been an unemployed bum on the streets of Munich and who few, upon his ascension to power in 1933, believed would last very long. But Hitler, as insane as he was, understood economics, as well as understanding the resentments of the German people. And he embarked on a program to lift Germany out of the Depression through a military buildup which, of course, stimulated the economy, as it did in the United States in the 1940s, as we discussed last time, as well as Hitler's attempt uh, to acquire wealth, raw materials, human labor, uh, capital, through military expansion in Germany. In other words, don't necessarily grow it on your own. Take it from someone. Now, this program that Hitler launched of remilitarization and territorial expansion, of course, violated the Treaty of Versailles, which Germany had signed to end World War I. But Hitler was shrewd enough to understand that Great Britain and France, which had both been bled dry by World War I, I told you what the casualty numbers were, they were in no mood to ask their young men, or what was left of their young men, to fight in another war so soon after the first one. And so Hitler proceeded with relative impunity during the 1930s, building up the German army, uh, remilitarizing the Rhineland section of Germany, which is right on the uh, uh, French border, uh, resigning from the League of Nations, uh, annexing Austria, uh, then the Sudetenland section of Czechoslovakia, then all of Czechoslovakia, as Great Britain and France essentially just stood by. And across the Atlantic, the United States, absorbed with its own problems, especially economic problems, essentially stood by as well. There was a strong isolationist sentiment in the United States during the 1930s. A widespread feeling that over 100,000 American men had died for nothing during World War I. Or, perhaps more to the point, that they had died for the petty territorial and colonialist ambitions of the European powers. And for the profits of the American bankers and munition suppliers who did business with these European belligerents, the so-called merchants of death. And accordingly, during the 1930s, Congress passed a series of neutrality acts designed to keep the United States out of another European war. Acts that severely restricted trade with belligerents, no matter who was right or wrong. Now, Americans thought that that they had been fooled during World War II by Great Britain and uh, uh, France's protestations that... Uh, They were countries that favored democracy and fought for democracy and were right, while Germany favored tyranny and was wrong. In the minds of many Americans in the 1930s, looking back, all three of these nations, Great Britain, France, and Germany, had been wrong. And Americans resolved that, to borrow the title of a song famous when I was a boy, we won't get fooled again. Who sang that song? The answer's in the title. The who? Now, gradually, FDR could see that war with Germany was going to be inevitable, however. That Germany was bent not just on European conquest, but on world conquest. And that FDR, he himself, would have to prepare the American people to fight another world war. And this, Roosevelt did, in typical typical Rooseveltian fashion, almost without seeming to, in small stages, seemingly manipulated by events and not the other way around. In 1937, decrying German and Japanese militarism, he called for a quote-unquote quarantine of aggressor states by the world's democracies. In other words, putting people in a corner, so to speak, giving them time out, so to speak. After hostilities in Europe began in September 1939, when Hitler, after stunning the world with a non-aggression pact with his archenemy, the Communist Soviet Union, invaded Poland and forced Great Britain and France, the Allies, to finally declare war on him, Roosevelt, while officially neutral, inched America closer and closer to entering the war against Hitler as well and strove mightily to prop up Great Britain when France fell ignominiously to Germany uh, uh, in June 1940. Now, FDR had gotten Congress to repeal the Neutrality Act's ban on arms sales to nations at war in 1939, and used this opportunity to arrange what was known as a cash and carry deal with Great Britain, whereby... Uh, Great Britain would pay cash for munitions and carry them away in their own ships. The next year, 1940, in addition to instituting the first peacetime draft in American history, FDR moved ever closer to entering the war by making a destroyers-for-bases deal with Great Britain, under which America would receive bases on British territory in exchange for destroyers. And finally... In 1941 came Lend-Lease, whereby America sent munitions to Great Britain, and the Atlantic Charter, in which Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill agreed on the shape of the post-war world even before the war had begun for the United States. This is in 1941 before Pearl Harbor. Renouncing territorial expansion, calling for national self-determination, and pledging to found an international body, the United Nations, with the power to protect the world from any future Hitlers that might arise in the future. A vision, then, that was similar to that of Woodrow Wilson's during World War I, but one that, of course, would come much closer uh, to reaching fruition, especially regarding America's accepting its international role. America was and is the driving force behind the U.N., after all, as hostile as as many Americans are to the U.N. today. So, this was the state of affairs when the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941 propelled the United States into World War II, both against Germany and Japan. And speaking of Japan, let me trace America's road to war with that nation. Now, Japan, like Germany... Used militarism and extreme nationalism to fuel its program of territorial expansion during the 1930s. It seized Manchuria, a part of China, in 1931, and invaded China itself in 1937. An invasion that featured horrifying atrocities against civilians, including the infamous Rape of Nanking, in which Japanese soldiers tortured and slaughtered some 300,000 residents of that Chinese city in an orgy of violence that uh, included beheadings, disembowelments, sexual mutilations, and the burning of children alive. Uh, uh, A massacre that was so extreme that it moved the German consul in the city, himself, remember, a Nazi, to register a protest based on humanitarian grounds. The Chinese are still very angry about uh, these kinds of atrocities uh, today. Now, FDR, alarmed by Japan's plans to make much of Southeast Asia, including the Philippines and what is now Vietnam, a Japanese sphere of influence, began tightening the economic screws against this material poor, uh, resource poor uh, island nation uh, in the late 1930s. Roosevelt cut off sales of essential raw materials to Japan in 1940, ironically forcing Japan to do exactly what FDR feared, which is invade Indochina, which is what is now Vietnam and Laos, uh, to get those raw materials. And then in 1941, FDR froze all Japanese assets in the United States, leaving Japan without the ability to obtain oil from the United States or really to buy it anywhere else. And this, of course, precipitated Japan's desperate gamble of bombing Pearl Harbor in December 1941, a surprise attack. Uh, uh, designed to destroy the U.S. naval fleet in one blow and knock America out of a long war, at least. An attack that may have succeeded if U.S. aircraft carriers, which were away on maneuvers, had been in port that day. Our aircraft carriers were spared. As it was, however, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was devastating. They sunk 19 ships, uh, destroyed almost 200 planes, and killed uh, 2,200 Americans. As devastating as the attack was, and has anybody ever seen Pearl Harbor? Has anybody been out there? Hey, okay, a few of you. I, I've, I've been there too. It's, it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite moving. What's so funny? <laughs> you, well, you saw a movie about Pearl Harbor, and that's, that's the. You're right. Okay. <laughs> it's a good movie, right? <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't the same as being there, but it was a good movie. Well, the, uh, the Arizona Memorial at Pearl Harbor, for those of you who have seen it, is, is, is deeply moving, and I hope we do as well uh, with the World Trade Center Memorial, which seems to just be stagnating. Uh, uh, so, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor is devastating, but not devastating enough, because it's the Japanese high command that planned it knew all too well and aroused American nation uh, and America was aroused, uh, uh, furious actually, at the Japanese. Uh, Any of you who have heard Franklin Roosevelt's uh, December 8th, 1941 speech, which begins uh, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, has anybody ever seen that speech? Uh, The usual genial and and, and sometimes even jovial FDR's voice is shaking with anger during during that speech. Uh, And I think Japan knew this, because this is a new way of declaring war. Uh, uh, by, by attacking, uh, uh, attacking in a surprise fashion this way. Uh, if you note how World War I started, World War I started with official declarations of war. Uh, uh, you know, there would be a paper drawn up, and the German ambassador uh, uh, to Great Britain, for example, would go to uh, the German, equi- the British equivalent, of the State Department, and hand the paper to his opposite number, saying, "We are declaring war on you." They would shake hands, they would wish each other luck, and the German ambassador would leave the country. That's how war was declared, not by attacking uh, uh, military bases in a surprise attack. Uh, uh, so Japan knew that America would be very angry, and also that America would begin to uh, uh, mobilize its enormous uh, uh, productive capacities into a war effort that would make it impossible for the resource starved Japanese nation uh, to win a long war. The first thing, the leader of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the great Japanese uh, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, said to his superiors upon coming back to Tokyo after uh, uh, the uh, uh, Pearl Harbor attack was, gentlemen, we have lost the war. And this is, of course, what eventually happened uh, uh, in both the European and uh, uh, Pacific theaters. The United States simply outproduced (laughs) Japan, as well as Germany and the rest of the world. And won World War II on the battlefields of North Africa, Italy, France, and Germany itself, as well as in the islands of the South Pacific. Now, how America won the war uh, militarily is discussed in detail in the textbook, uh, and I'm not going to repeat all that detail here. I'll only highlight the themes of the war in Europe and in the Pacific. Now, in its fight with Germany, America was presented with an unexpected ally, the USSR, uh, which Germany had attacked in violation of their 1939 uh, non aggression pact in the summer of 1941, a very foolhardy act that cost Germany hundreds of thousands of casualties and eventually cost it the war with the USSR fighting the Nazis to a standstill at the gates of Moscow and at Stalingrad in 1942 and 1943, the bloodiest and most vicious fighting of the entire war in either theater, the United States was now in a position to win the war against Germany in stages, slowly squeezing it from both sides, with the uh, Soviet Union attacking uh, from the east and the allies from the west. But first... It would be the south, in North Africa, where British and American troops halted and then destroyed a German army led by General Erwin Rommel. Then in Italy, as American troops pushed the Germans up through Sicily uh, and up the boot of that nation, finally taking Rome in June 1944. And of course, most famously, from the north and west in the June 6, 1944 D-Day landing, which was portrayed so vividly in the movie Saving Private Ryan, that eventually liberated Paris, all of France, and the rest of, of Europe, at least liberated it from the Nazis. By May 1945, U.S. and British forces, moving from the west and the Soviets, uh, 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 advancing from the east, had overrun Germany ending the war in Europe and, of course, setting the stage for an even longer battle for supremacy between the U.S. and the USSR in Germany, Europe, and the world at large, which ended only about two decades ago. This was, of course, the Cold War, about which we'll have much more to say in the future. Now, in the Pacific the United States, in brutal, racially tinged fighting in which relatively few prisoners were taken on either side, managed to move from island to island in the South Pacific, Guadalcanal, Solomons, Saipan, others, and by the spring of 1945, onto the islands of Iwo Jima and Okinawa, from which direct airstrikes could be launched on the Japanese home islands. Now, the battles of Iwo Jima and Okinawa were among the most brutal in the history of American warfare. Iwo Jima, of course, has recently been the subject of two Clint Eastwood films, Flags of Our Fathers, uh, and uh, uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. On Okinawa alone, 48,000 American soldiers died, and that's almost as many as were killed in the entire Vietnam War, about 58,000 there. Now, under these circumstances, President Harry Truman's decision to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945 in the hopes of avoiding the necessity for a direct invasion of the Japanese homeland itself which some of Truman's advisors, with some exaggeration, I think, but it's really impossible to tell for sure, told him it would cost upwards of half a million, 500,000 American casualties, that this decision by Truman to drop the atomic bomb becomes somewhat easier to understand, if not to completely accept. Suffice it to say about this extremely controversial decision, which historians are arguing about passionately, even viciously, Uh, to this day that there were compelling reasons both to drop the bomb and not to drop the bomb and that Truman did about as well in making this decision as could be expected given the information before him at the time which is less than what we know now Truman himself as we could see from the passage that we read for today never lost a moment's sleep over his decision to drop the atomic bomb a decision that I am glad I did not have to make has anybody ever visited Hiroshima? Has anybody been, anybody been at Hiroshima? Yeah, I, I have too, actually. I've, uh, uh, I, I was there uh, let's see, four years ago as part of a Lawrence trip, and it was uh, uh, like the Arizona Memorial. It sort of bookends the war, uh, the Pearl Harbor Arizona Memorial in Hiroshima. I think it's, it's a deeply moving place. Uh, uh, and it struck me when I was visiting there that every, every American presidential candidate should be required to, to, to take a visit to Hiroshima. You know, whatever their views are, uh, uh, whatever their foreign policy views are, it probably would do them a lot of good because it's a very sobering place uh, to, to to visit Hiroshima. That's what I, I, I would make that a requirement that every you know the Democratic and Republican candidates uh, for president they have to visit Hiroshima before you know before the election. In any case, the atomic bombs uh, dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki ended the war with Japan and ended and left the United States uh, in control of uh, uh, Japan's destiny. A destiny that under American supervision would eventually include demilitarization, democracy, and a capitalist economy. America's involvement with Asia, of course, did not end with the end of World War II, and we will have more to say in future weeks about Korea, about Vietnam, and the ways in which the United States waged the Cold War there. So, That was the story of World War II for America on the battlefield. On the home front, as I mentioned earlier, the war affected changes in American society, uh, politics, culture, racial, ethnic relations, and economic life, all of which continue to affect us today. There was, of course, the end of the Depression. Uh, uh, the nation's GNP gross national product grew 15% each year of World War II about what it was growing uh, during uh, during, uh, the 1920s there was also the great migration to northern cities of hundreds of thousands of southern African Americans who were thrown off the land by AAA policies and the mechanization of agriculture to work in war related industries which changed the face of our urban areas forever There was the entry uh, by women into the workforce, especially the industrial workforce, a trend that would eventually help create the feminist movement of the 1960s and beyond, the influence of which on our culture, our family relations, our social life cannot be exaggerated and certainly affects every one of you now sitting in this room. And there were many more changes, too many changes to discuss today. I certainly couldn't list them all, uh, even when I took my exam uh, back in graduate school. But I wanted to talk about one change in particular, by way of making the jump from the World War II years to the post-war era that we'll begin to talk about on Monday. And that was the creation of the military-industrial complex, which played such an important role in American life after World War II. Now, during World War II, America began to subsidize and sometimes just outright finance new and already existing industries that were providing war-related materials. And in so doing, the government ended a period of hostility between government and business, that had existed since FDR's populist-tinged Second New Deal that we talked about beginning in 1935, during which Roosevelt appeared to criticize business on behalf of the common man. But by the time the United States entered World War II in 1941, the federal government needed business. And so it entered into a partnership with it to win the war. And through agencies like the War Production Board, the government gave business all the help it could to turn out the planes, the ships, and the tanks that were necessary to defeat Germany and Japan. And in the process, government made big business even bigger. Before World War II, the largest 100 companies in in America supplied 30% of the nation's manufactured goods. But by the end of the war, that percentage had grown to 70%. And the federal government had established a relationship with big business that would survive the war. And, in addition, the government brought scientists who worked at universities into this relationship, supplying them with the research funds to build bigger and bigger weapons. And of course, the most notable example of this occurred, you know, uh, uh, of this during the war was the government sponsored Manhattan Project, which employed the best scientific minds in the world to build the atomic bomb. And these scientists and the universities that employed them would also continue to take government money and work for the government after the war. When I referred to research and development earlier, uh, this is what I was talking about. And this alliance, between big government, big business, and big universities, uh, which was as necessary to fight the Cold War after 1945 as it was to fight the Second World War before 1945, would come to be known as the military-industrial complex, a complex whose members would eventually have an interest in military expansion, an ideological or philosophical interest, of course, but also an economic interest as well. And those interests would, in time, lead America to use its vast technological resources, the product of this military-industrial complex born during World War II in a quagmire called Vietnam. So, if there is any one word we can use as the legacy of World War II in America, it is probably the word BIG. Big government, big business, big science, not to mention big labor, big bureaucracy, big spending, and big deficits. The entire scale of life in the United States was permanently expanded by World War II. America entered the post World War II years, the Cold War years, as a society in which institutions, big institutions, had replaced personal relationships in both the public and private sectors, uh, and in which the mass society, which I alluded to earlier, uh, uh, had finally come to fruition. One of the major themes of the post-war years, especially the 1950s and 1960s, will be the attempts of Americans living in this mass society society to carve out individual identities in such a faceless and nameless environment. But before we talk about this, we must first discuss a more immediate consequence of the rise of the military-industrial complex in America, and that is the Cold War itself. The Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, which we'll discuss in more detail next time, had its origins in that confused period at the end of the Second World War, when these two nations, ostensibly still allies, began to maneuver for position in the wake of the defeat of Germany and Japan. They were the only two superpowers left standing. Now, even in 1945 and in victory, there was much suspicion between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The U.S., believed the Soviets had betrayed them at the Yalta Conference in February of 1945, that's Y-A-L-T-A, when they promised a dying President Roosevelt that they would conduct free elections in Poland, which the USSR, uh, which the Soviet Union had just, uh, was in the process of capturing from Germany. And then the Soviet Union broke their promise. The USSR believed that the United States had betrayed them when the Americans kept their military-industrial complex's biggest secret and biggest project, uh, the construction of the atomic bomb, uh, uh, a secret from the Soviet Union, uh, until they had actually uh, uh, tested it. Uh, we have this, uh, this scene at, uh, at, a, at a conference between uh, uh, the new President Truman and, uh, and Joseph Stalin, uh, where Truman just offhandedly says, oh, by the way, uh, General Stalin, uh, we just exploded an atomic bomb, but uh, you know, now let's have lunch. Uh, 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 although, to be fair, Soviet spies in the United States, including Julius Rosenberg, uh, who was later executed for a- espionage, had already told the Soviet Union that, uh, that the Americans were working on and about to explode. Uh, an atomic bomb now FDR who had enjoyed a cordial personal relationship with the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin uh, had been confident that he could work his charms on him after uh, the war but now Roosevelt was dead the victim of a cerebral hemorrhage in April 1945 and all bets were off Harry Truman the blunt spoken Missourian who succeeded Roosevelt as president was much less willing to humor Uncle Joe, as FDR had affectionately called Stalin, and much more willing to confront him. Stalin, for his part, thought Truman was a hick, a bumpkin, especially in contrast to the suave FDR, and resolved to put him in his place. Next time, we will see how this personal and ideological rivalry developed and played out, as the U.S. dealt with the legacies of the World War during the Cold War.